This is Wayne Jernell, editor of Theory and Research in Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSC published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Dan, as a fellow educator, I do have a question mm-hmm. for you. Where do you learn to teach? Oh my. I know. All the ways. I feel yeah, I feel like I need to tell some kind of like I need a poem to like respond to this question, right? I think there's because it is, right? Like you don't Oh, like an learn. acrostic poem, you're gonna write teacher thoughtful oh. <laughs> i didn't think of that yeah I could oh just... sorry but that that would work right i i'm actually going to confess i don't know a lot about poetry a social studies person i i like how we use that as an excuse for like not learning other things it's like i picked a field um but <laughs> but you you know because we do learn um so let's start with formal right so the formal side of it is is i was a teacher candidate. And I, I vividly remember knowing nothing about teaching, which is rather profound after you go to school for 12 years. I like always have a joke with our teacher candidates. I'm like, has anybody started field experience? And they won't raise their hand because they hadn't in our program. And mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, well, did anyone get to go to school? And then they all raise their hand. How many years? 12. So you actually all have seen a tremendous amount of teaching in your life, right? And and most of us have lessons from that. But then you get into a more formal teacher education program or even an alt cert program where you're getting some field experiences and and you you go into classrooms and are paired with teachers, which can be sometimes educational, sometimes miseducational, I feel like. But if you want to know where my priorities were for my when I was assigned my student teaching. I had, I actually told a lie because they signed me to Norman North High School. But yeah, the the woman I had a crush on, she was at Norman High. And so I told them I didn't own a car, which is funny because now I don't own a car. So it came back around. And anyway, it only took about five more years before she started dating me. But then we got married. Ah, so did so, you go to Norman High? I did. I did my student teaching at Norman High. They didn't have any good placements left. And my teacher who I was with would just leave because he'd never taught Oklahoma history and he just would have me teach it, which was good in some ways. I think I did some good things and like otherwise was totally overwhelmed, right? Like it was too much history to learn and be ready to teach the next day, which was a good preview for the first few years of teaching whenever oh, I taught yeah. a new subject. But I learned a lot then, but I also think if it, it, you know, there's a lot of other places in the world you can learn to teach. I mean, where do you think like you learn to be a teacher, right? Like thinking broadly. So I was a camp counselor for a while, uh, which I really enjoyed in like being able to manage, you know, sometimes unruly kids during the summer, like keeping them, you know, active and whatnot. That was definitely a challenge. And talk about classroom management. Uh, that was a heck of a time. Although we also had canoeing too. And so if kids were being really, you know, I could tip them over in a canoe. Not that I often did that, but some actually <laughs> most of the time they would tip it over on us. It was a, a fun summer, yes. or a fun few summers. Camp counseling, I think it was a great, uh, a great experience for me. Yeah, I mean, I think my student teaching was invaluable. My teacher, and I've talked about my cooperating teacher, who I think his words of advice that I always take to heart were, don't screw up too much, Milton. Um, <laughs> oh, that sounds good. I like that. Yeah, it was, it was fun. But no, yeah, no, camp counseling, I think was a, was a heck of an experience and definitely gave me uh, invaluable lessons. 
And I'll say today, I, I went out with a teacher and to a school, a close school nearby, and I went to her classroom and she allowed me to just sit in on her class. And you just, it's cool just seeing the ways that, that people do things, right? You just learn like the little things sometimes, but also then you're, you can rethink your pedagogical approaches, right? Just to me, which go through everything you do. But I think the other thing is it's is one thing we're talking about when we talk about teaching is like kind of directing and helping people learn. But I think another big part of this is thinking about like, what are our aims? right? Like we're teaching for what, for what type of society and what are we trying to do? And so I think people that really do probably a great job in teacher preparation probably are not just thinking about how do you know how to run a classroom? How do you know how to, to get a student to listen? But like, how are you doing that in ways that's going to, you know, promote like a multiracial democracy, for example. And so I'd like to, I just would love to know and learn from more people about how they do that. Are you, I'm guessing you're queuing up that we have guests. Was it obvious? Was it yeah, obvious? Yeah, well, normally this is the time after we do this intro bit. This is when you introduce the guest. So I, I definitely, I saw this one coming. So without further ado, Michael, we would like to welcome, welcome in welcome super back. friend of the pod, right? Emma Thacker and new guest, Aaron Bodel. Welcome. Thanks, Thank you, you all. Yeah, so quick introductions. I'm sure. Emma Thacker. I'm an associate professor at James Madison University in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Where I learned to be a teacher was in the beautiful Commonwealth of Kentucky. That's where I did my teacher prep as well as my PhD. I learned, yeah, I did some swimming coaching and, and lessons and some studies abroad where I learned a lot about myself and others and, and then traditional teacher prep. So. My name is Aaron Bodel, and I'm an associate professor in the College of Education at James Madison University as well. And where did I learn to teach? I learned to teach in a lot of different places through all the formal routines of teacher preparation at Indiana University. Um, but also, I think I learned to teach working in the community in Bloomington, Indiana, quite a bit um, in a couple of different capacities. One, I was lucky enough to be a re reading tutor uh, for a group, an organization called Girls Incorporated, where I worked with young girls and um, learned about how to teach reading to people who were really struggling readers and to kind of include an exciting component to that, um, get them excited about it. Um, but I also learned, I think, to teach from, this is going to sound strange, but from a bunch of guys who moved furniture for a living. They often talked about, I would tell them that I was studying to be a teacher and that opened up these great conversations about the good teachers they had, the bad teachers they had, the difficult experiences they had in schools. And I often found myself in my beginning years of teaching thinking, you know, that reminds me of the story that one of those gentlemen told me at some point. And it was really helpful to have their perspectives walking into the field, I think. Yeah. Isn't it interesting the people like in our lives, whether it's random or people close to us who teach us these different lessons that, that actually have a lot of implications for teachers, right? For some reason, I, as you were saying that, I was just thinking of my, my uh, paternal grandmother who just was like never judgmental of anyone. And I was like, it's a really good disposition for a teacher to have, right? Like she just never, she, she gave everyone a chance, which is I think a good place to start. And then she, when they did some bad things, she didn't, she didn't dwell on it ever. She just moved on and that's how she kind of lived her life. So I was thinking, I, I certainly like think of that sometimes and be like, okay, be more like grandma, you know, like move on, don't say anything. It's okay. But all these, uh, we can learn from so many people who have dispositions that are really appropriate for teaching. But in this case, you all have done 
quite a bit of research, right? Which I think we can talk about that informs not this discussion, but takes it a little bit further and allows us to think about this, I think, in a lot deeper and 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 really important ways for the direction of our society. And so you published an article in Theory and Research and Social Education. So first off, congratulations on your publication. Thank you. And the article is titled Seizing the Moment, a Critical Place-Based Partnership for Anti-Racist Elementary Social Studies Teacher Education. Can you all tell us about this project? Yeah, and I think too with with learning to teach one thing I'd like to add if I can and I think it probably goes for Aaron too and maybe both of you we're still learning to teach, right? And so this project right. is is an outgrowth of our continuing journeys of how to be the best teachers we we can be as well. But yeah, so this particular project really has been a long time coming. This it focuses on um, this, as you said, like an anti-racist elementary social studies class uh, that has a site-based, a place-based component at James Madison's Montpelier, which clearly is a site of racial trauma and a really complex site and complex histories there. So Aaron and I really started, I was thinking this morning, started this partnership. We started talking about it kind of in spring 2016 and really started working with the archaeologists at Montpelier in the fall of 2017, which those of us in Virginia have been reminded this is about the five-year anniversary of when we started this partnership and also of the white supremacist rallies in Charlottesville. So there was a lot of socio-political uh, happenings both during summer 2020 when this study is based as well as throughout our partnership. It's just been fraught with our society trying to confront how racist our society is. And that leads us to how can we better prepare our elementary pre-service teachers to help, right? To, to, to be the best teachers they can be and how can we become the best teachers we can be. And that's really, that's really kind of what precipitated this action research study that we talk about in the article. Adding to what Emma has already said, I think... In addition to that, we teach at a university, James Madison University, and we obviously are teaching pre-service teachers, a predominantly white group of people at an institution that often doesn't invite or hasn't invited historically a critical perspective of its namesake. And so in addition to all the things that were happening and all of those impetus that Emma described, we really wanted to also invite our pre-service teachers to, to think critically about the history that they were sort of immersed in, what kinds of narratives were being valued, what narratives were devalued within that space, and how we, could we invite them to think in more complex ways about those histories. And we were working on place-based partnerships prior to that and felt we wanted to do more um, that was specifically anti-racist and specifically thoughtful about teaching multiple histories. So I know this is something that we've definitely covered or definitely discussed at some point, but in a prior podcast, but can you tell us the difference between like not racism or not being racist to anti-racist so we can kind of like get a better understanding of what you are working towards? Sure. I think not being racist, as Kendi would say, not being racist, I think is where most people view themselves. You know, they often see themselves as saying, well, you know, I'm not this overtly racist person who is intentionally harming others with racist ideas and other things like that. 
And therefore, I'm not a bad person, or I'm not a person who acts to support racism in my society. But I think what Kendi also is saying with this idea that it's not enough to be not racist, that we must be anti-racist, and that's paraphrasing, that's not an exact quote, is he's saying we need to actively reflect upon those places where racism shapes our society, including within ourselves and our own actions, and also reflect upon that and take action to change that. So being anti-racist is taking the step toward recognizing racism when it occurs um, and, and where it is, placing it, and then responding to it in a way that tries to diffuse it. So that gives a lot of purpose to your program, to to your teacher ed program, right? When it has that is that now we are not just trying to prepare students to be teachers or them to prepare students to be citizens, but we're preparing them to be something specific in this case, which is anti-racist teachers and hope and hopefully citizens who are confronting and right what racism as it exists and working actively towards addressing it. And but this is kind of, by the way, for our, for our longtime listeners, you know, Emma's been on this podcast like a million times. This is your fourth appearance, which maybe is a record. I don't know. It's close. There are a few people like up there with with you. Um, but it's it actually comes back because when we first started talking, I remember you introduced your university um, as James Madison. And I kind of just wanted to start talking about James Madison. I was very curious about how people relate that legacy because, you know, I'm like many people. I, I grew up with the kind of whitewashed. And I mean that like in 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 two different ways, using that term in two different ways, version of history where you just learned about James Madison's contributions as a as a as a founder, right? But he but Madison has, you know, this this legacy that often we have to wrestle with, right? Having an institution named after someone and having s- students who are gonna work against something that that really isn't institutionalized, right? How do we change those kinds of things? So so what did you learn and what did you all do in this project to forward and an anti-racist approach to teacher education for elementary social studies? Wow, that's a big question, Dan. (laughs) You know, I think throughout our partnership, we've learned, you know, a lot of lessons, a lot as an understatement, but, but just about ways that we can learn and unlearn histories, as Aaron said earlier. So the first, kind of the first step for our students and as you mentioned, Dan, like most of them and, you know, myself too, like we learned this kind of singular white centered narrative of progress and history. And, you know, we had the civil rights movement and we're all good now. James Madison was wonderful. And so the first step has been, you know, we've learned various ways to confront those, those histories and to learn more and to unlearn kind of the half truths that, that most of us were subjected to throughout K-12 and even K-16 education. And uh, much of that has been through place-based experiences. So we've done field trips and, and things like that with, with our partners at Montpelier as well. You know, and then as we've kind of honed this focus on anti-racist teaching and learning with our students, and especially in this study in the context of summer 2020, where we were confronted with, again and again, these um, police brutality and and killings of Black people at the hands of the police. We were confronted with the racial disparities at the outset of the COVID-19 pandemic. And so we were just all really, uh, and most of our participants, most of our pre-service teachers were were white. We had one 
pre-service teacher of color in, in the course. And so I think, you know, we've learned some somewhat about how to recognize and learn with and in the context that we find ourselves in with, with our students and how to model that kind of ongoing learning with, with our students. And, you know, Aaron and I have reflected on our own racial experiences alongside our students and been, you know, very vulnerable with, with them. And I think that's been something that we're, we've continued, continued to learn. So thinking back to kind of our our introduction where Michael and I were talking about the places where you learn, I'm curious, yeah, more about the place-based notion of this work and how that played out in the study. Yeah, absolutely. Place played a really central role in the study, obviously. Um, We're working at a site of racial trauma at a very specific location, which with partners who I want to underscore are also very committed to the idea of addressing the entire history of Montpelier and thinking about this work through anti-racist lenses and enacting this work through anti-racist action. And I think that's a really important piece of this for us. It's the partnership and the place that really come together here. I think because we have very common goals, common anti-racist goals in our work, And we're both addressing this in a very specific context. So when we went to build this partnership with the archaeology department at Montpelier, one of the things that they were working on is called the Mere Distinction of Color exhibit, which is part of what's being done at Montpelier. They won a bunch of awards for this work. And what happened there is the archaeology department partnered very closely with members of the descendant community of people who were enslaved at Montpelier to create an exhibit that would focus on and emphasize the lived experiences of individuals who were enslaved in more complete and meaningful ways than it often has, is, has been done at presidential homes. And this work was, very, was a very close partnership in and of itself, where in many ways the, the descendant community was leading the way in terms of how, this, how the histories of those individuals who had been enslaved at Montpelier were being narrated within that space. And so we were very attracted to that and interested in the idea of how that work came about. Um, and we wanted to, to really find ways for our students to take part in that partnership. And I think for me, one of the big takeaways that um, from, from that partnership and from our partnership within all of that with them has been one, that when we create partnerships, when educators of any kind create partnerships, it's very important to find like-mindedness, to say, how are we working together in this process? How can we work together to to continue to educate um, with a purpose and some intentionality? And in addition to that, obviously, you know, I, I guess I would add that specific places play a really important role in that, especially when we're attempting to address issues of injustice and racial trauma and other forms of trauma within our society that we're trying to confront. When we invite students into really thinking about the ways space and place shape, maintain, and are inscribed with injustice, we give them a set of tools they can use to analyze those spaces. And is what Grunewald, a critical pedagogist would say, is he, 
to re-inhabit spaces, to, to decolonize our minds and to re-inhabit spaces in more just ways. So you talked about how they were creating like a really unique setup with the descendant community. What was uh, like, what's an example of that? And how did your, your teachers, uh, your educators who were there, how did they kind of experience it? What were their perspectives of it? So one particular artifact comes to mind that's that's highlighted in the exhibit Aaron mentioned in the Mere Distinction of Color exhibit. And that is like a pipe bowl that that they found on, on this archaeological dig. That's a, a mason. It's got a mason symbol on it. And so the archaeologists who, similar to education, where we have a whole lot of white teachers and, and need to up our, our representation, of um, teachers of color, Archeolo- all the archaeologists are also white. And m- they they were thinking about, oh, was Madison a Mason? You know, we've never, you know, looked into this. And and a, a descendant said, uh, well, let's think where we found this artifact. They found it in the South Yard, which was where some of the enslaved community lived. And she said, you know, we, Black people have this long history of being Masons. So she used her expertise, her family history, her knowledge, and the partnership she was there with working with the archaeologists to interpret that artifact more more correctly. And then now visitors who go to Montpelier, our students and ourselves included, can can learn can learn about that. That's powerful to think that the archaeologists, right, kind of had to be corrected by you know family members who looked at it differently who didn't look at through i guess you would say like the white gaze or their or their kind of white like worldview or perspective and you know it's it's interesting in in teacher education we have these kind of you or even in education in general we'll talk about like making the classroom come alive right you know you hear people say like get it and i think the point is is that classrooms are these closed off spaces that are very dead right like they're they're meant to like isolate you from the environment from the rest of the world so you can concentrate study and do other things but of course with any this is now getting into my you know my little soapbox about about technology but with all technologies you lose something right and so i think the problem with is we can really be disconnected from our neighborhoods from our natural world from our from our historical sites that we need to be connected to and so i i would think that bringing students to these spaces would be would affect them in ways that are hard to probably measure or even take into account which is a difficult thing in a study but even when i've been to museums recently i'm you know, the, the probably the similar site for me is I, I went to the Greenwood Rising Museum in Tulsa, which is brand new and didn't exist when I was young. As, as if you know the history of the Tulsa race massacre, it was for a long time swept uh, hidden in a very like conspiratorial fashion, actually. And um, going there, I'm just like, every student needs to be here. Like, that's how I felt in the moment. But when you go back to your classrooms, it's hard to get out of those classrooms because we've created spaces for teaching. And so I'm kind of curious, like, about, like, the sustainability of this, both both in just making it happen, getting out of the classrooms and going to places, but then also the maintenance of anti-racist work, because we know what's happened in this country, right? Like, during the George Floyd protests, like white Americans had their 10 minutes of, of, of caring about race and we're back right where we were, right. With the kind of the reaction even coming harder to now we're banning the work of black people in our, in my area, black principals have been fired. And so it's frustrating to see that 
people it, back to normal, but I guess it shouldn't be surprising. That's kind of been American history. So I'm curious about this, like if you have any advice for the sustainability of this type of work of getting outside of our classrooms, but also maintaining, you know, anti-racist critical work in education. Yeah, I think, you know, this particular project and partnership is is unique, right? It's space based. So we're we're relatively close geographically. We're connected in, you know, the namesake of Madison. But but I do think, you know, what what immediately comes to mind when you ask about sustainability, particularly in anti-racist work, is the it comes back to the partners. And so our partners are maybe they're tired. <laughs> right and fatigued but there's they're dedicated to doing you know their work of anti-racist work at james madison's montpelier and there's like a footnote in our article when when it came to press there was i don't know if you all followed in the spring like the they had voted last year to have structural parity in the montpelier board with the descendants community committee and then the board was backing away from that this spring Two of our partner, two of the people we've worked with, one, our, our kind of lead partner was actually fired over his advocacy in support of the descendant committee and in support of shared leadership of the Montpelier Foundation with the descendants of the people James Madison enslaved. Um, they've since, he's since been rehired. The archaeology department has since come, you know, come back, back to work. But all of that is to to say, you know, they're they're a shining example of not everybody's quit the work, right? Many people have, many white people have changed focus, but not everybody has. So it's been really important for the sustainability of this project to find the people who are in it. I would add the partnerships that the Montpelier Archaeology Department has built are one of the ways that this issue could be resolved. So first and foremost, the partnership, the close, honest partnership I see between the Montpelier descendant community and the archaeology department um, was very, very important. One, because you see in this situation where the Montpelier archaeology department um, advocates actively on behalf of the descendant community. And you also saw at that time, the descendant community actively um, advocating for their partners in the archeology span department to really mobilize this amazing effort to say, no, this will not happen. This is not how this is gonna go. And I wanna highlight that. But then additionally, on a much, much smaller scale, I can remember very specifically that, you know, Emma and I advocating at our own university on behalf of, the archaeology department and the descendant community to speak up, to, to work actively, to try to respond in as many ways as possible, to reach out to our networks. And so it starts to become when you have enough people actively moving toward, moving, you know, fighting against these injustices when they occur, I believe, you know, real change can happen, um, but it does require an incredible amount of stamina and, and energy, but also those networks of listening, caring, learning together. So thank you for your tenacity. Obviously you've been really kind of like working <laughs> with many partners to kind of create this and to keep it, keep it going. And it does seem to be a, a struggle at points. What advice do you have for educators or for partners to enact something like this in their own world? 
you know, I think we have already kind of talked around this and I, but I can't emphasize enough the importance of choosing who you work with. So not only I've learned and enjoyed, you know, from my partnership with Aaron, of course. So, so a close colleague in, you know, in my department with teaching and research, but then also clearly in this case, our, our partners at Montpelier and their anti-racist aims and just, you know, the ways that we have collaborated with them to, to make sure our goals are, are closely aligned to which, you know, I've done site-based experiences, field trips in the past, both as a classroom teacher and professor that are, have not been as impactful, right? And much of that comes down to a lack of intentionality and a lack of the, you know, the close collaboration and co-planning that, that we've done here. I'll add, I mean, of course, that partnership is extremely important and Emma has really said it all, but also it's, it really has been a delight um, and to, to share this work in this journey in many ways with Emma and with our students, with our partners at Montpelier and the members of the descendant community we've had a chance to work with. It's been incredible to have this experience and continue to, to grow along the way. And I think that's a really important piece of this is to, when I think about takeaways might be, of course, the partnerships um, and building those partnerships and then maintaining those partnerships. And I think if I had a piece of advice on how to maintain those partnerships, one of the biggest pieces, at least that's been important to me, has been to find ways to stay active in the work, but also to be willing to decenter my own preconceived notions about what where this work should go and what it should do. So I can really open myself up to seeing things in new ways, hearing things in new ways, and allowing all of the knowledge, expertise, experience, and ideas to really to be valued. And I think that takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of listening, a lot of willingness to think again or try something different, do something new. But I think that's really, I think what's necessary here and what's made this partnership so powerful for me specifically. Emma Thacker and Aaron Bodel, thank you so much for spending this time with us and thank you for keeping it up. Thank you. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Now, where can our listeners find you or your work online? So I am a little bit on Twitter. I have a Twitter account. It's ES Thacker. I'm on it all the time. But re I mean, honestly, the best way to reach me is probably email because I'm old. So that is thackies at jmu.edu. Dan's very excited about your email address again. Yes. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> I use, uh, I can be found. You can always find me via email. I think that's the best way to do it. And that is B-O-D-L-E-A-T at J-M-U dot E-D-U. Bodal at. Uh, Bodal at or Bodal Eat. Um, oh, that actually I, is I prefer Bodal at, but, um, you know, I've had, uh, I, you know, Bodal Eat works as well. <laughs> My email, uh, when I signed up, I just did Dan K at O-U dot E-D-U when I went to undergrad, which uh, quickly was just dank at ou.edu. So there you go. I did not intend that. Thank you both for joining us today. We certainly hope to continue the discussion in our limited but very meaningful emails we're going to send to each other. Sorry, as a, in my new role, I'm all about limiting emails and using it restrictively so that we have time in our lives. But thank you all both for joining us. 
Now, at the Visions of Education podcast, we are all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun or creative in education, or you just want to chat, and we get it, we're there, and we're here. Hit us up at Visions of Ed on Twitter. Uh, and if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Education on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and anywhere you'd like us to be. We're doing coffee shops sometimes. Oh, we are. And if you, write us a, <laughs> if you write us a five-star review, we'll read it on the air. We really will. Michael, we probably need to go double check and make sure we don't have some because we've been saying that <laughs> for a few episodes and haven't read any recently. But they're coming. Michael and I are not liars. We would also like to thank Zach Seitz of Wiley High School and the University of North Texas for Zach his Seitz. editing skills. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Thick Feet. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off.